Hello and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. Now, we all know about the love Liberal Democrats have for delivering leaflets. So our dream professor of politics would be one who specialises in studying leaflets. And that is just who I'm delighted to say is on the show this time, Professor Caitlin Milazzo of Nottingham University. Welcome, Caitlin. Hi, Mark. Now, for your research into political leaflets, you've put together a unique collection of over 8,000 different leaflets, I believe. Is that right? Actually, now we're up to over 9,000. So we, we have reached 9,287 leaflets um, in our collection. So spanning four general elections, four elections to the devolved parliaments. So a range, basically 10 years of British campaigns. And those leaflets come from volunteers uploading uh, and providing copies of leaflets to your research archive. Is that right? Because I feel there is a request to Lib Dems to supply copies of leaflets coming along in a moment. <laughs> yes, indeed. So, so this is a crowdsourced project. So we rely on citizen science basically to power our research. So what essentially that means is we ask citizens to upload the, the leaflets that they receive to our, our archive um, so that we, we can then analyze them and, and say something not just about what the leaflets that they receive, but in fact, what candidates are saying around the country. Oh, do you have any sense of how representative, therefore, that archive is? I can imagine it might be skewed particularly towards leaflets in maybe from more affluent areas, that possibly people in more affluent areas are more likely to take the time and have the things like the technical equipment and, and be on the internet and so on to be able to submit leaflets to, to the archive. Yeah, so... Uh with any project that relies on on volunteers, there's always going to be some measure of, of what we might call bias uh, in, in political science. Um, so certain types of individuals are more likely to be interested in uploading leaflets for the, in the first place, um, as well as being interested in politics. And so this is one of the things that we've looked at as a part of our research, because what we want to be able to, to do is to say something about politics more generally. And to do that, we have to understand the limits of the sample of leaflets that we have um, and what that can tell us about politics. So we've looked at a, a range of different things, including what you've mentioned. Um, so relationships between, say, um, access, access to internet, because we know that internet speeds vary um, in different parts of the country, though internet is obviously um, widely available at this stage. And so we do find evidence that we're more likely to have leaflets from places where you're more likely to have high-speed internet. Um, we're more likely to have leaflets from urban areas. You know, there's more density that, of, of leaflets perhaps given out, say, in the far reaches of Scotland, where perhaps maybe fewer leaflets are, are received. But all that being said, what we have looked at at the same time is data that we have about the types of campaigns that parties and candidates run. Um, so we know lots about how much candidates spend on things like election leaflets. Um, and we have lots of really good data from voters about what which parties they relieve, receive leaflets from. So what we're able to do is we're able to take all of that data and we'll be able to compare it to the number of leaflets that we have for different constituencies within our sample. And what we find is that, while we may not have a representative sample, we have more leaflets 
from constituencies where candidates spend more on leaflets in the first place and where more voters report that they received a leaflet from a given party, right? So broadly speaking, while we wouldn't say we have a representative sample, it, it aligns very nicely to patterns of candidate behavior and party behavior in terms of spending um, and dissemination of election leaflets. Well, I'll definitely include in the show notes the link to the upload uh, page on your project website. So hopefully that 9,287 number can go up can go up thanks to listeners. Um, what have you found then from looking at all of these leaflets? I mean, I've got just on the shelves to the left of me as we're recording this, uh, huge numbers of political leaflets going back over decades. And I find it just fascinating the pet patterns you can see about essentially changes in politics. Um, and, you know, we love to joke about how Lib Dems like pointing the potholes, but you can see, particularly through the 1970s, the rise of potholes as an appropriate thing to feature in a political leaflet, initially with the Liberals, then spreading to the uh, the SDP in the Alliance years, and then much more broadly. And, and these days, if you look at a leaflet featuring a pothole, it could be from any party. It's probably more likely still to be a Lib Dem leaflet, but in the way that if you were to show me a 1970s leaflet and redact various bits and it had a pothole on, I would guess Liberal Party with probably quite a lot more confidence than I would now. But that's obviously much longer historical trends. What what have you found from looking over the last decade uh, that's of interest? There's a... It's hard to pick. Um, there's so many, so many interesting things to, to to find. I mean, there's a number of different different kind of threads of research that we followed, um, not just looking within elections, but over time. Um, one of the aspects of campaigning that we've been particularly interested in is, is how parties and candidates talk about their opponents, right? So what what we would call negativity, um, you know, because generally when you talk about your opponent, you don't say nice things, um, though it does happen um, in very small number of occasions. Um, so we've looked at that and, and there's a general there's a general impression, I think, in politics that it's become more negative. Um, and one of the interesting things that we find in our research is that isn't really the case. Um, some parties are more likely to talk about their opponents than others. And that's largely been true since um, since we started, since our, our, our data analysis began. So in 2010. Um, so in general, the Lib Dems, Labour and Conservatives are much more likely to talk about each other, mostly, um, whereas other parties, UKIP, the Greens, tend to be less likely to mention um, their opponents. But in general, those le- levels of negativity haven't changed. Right. So. So campaigns haven't, in terms of the leaflets, become more negative over time. But what you do say, see is the, the nature of that negativity is changing, right? So there's lots of different ways that you can talk about your opponent. You could, for example, say, uh, criticize a policy opinion that they have, you know, so this party would like to take money away from the NHS, something like that, Um Alternatively, you could make you could criticize their opponent, or you could criticize the opposing candidate themselves. Now, the last the the talking about an opposing candidate is actually the least likely. Um, type of negativity that we see in this country, though obviously in the US, it's very common to spend lots of time um, saying nasty things about your opponent, but here it's quite rare. And But one of the interesting things that we find is that particular type of negativity has really decreased over time. So in 2010, lots of candidates were not only willing to criticize other candidates, they were willing to do it by name. 
And now, sometimes, very rarely, you'll see them criticizing, say, my labor opponent, something of that nature, but very rarely will they ever mention the opposing candidate's name. So we do see changes in how they talk about their opponents, but there are other types of negativity there on the rise. So, for example, we are much more like... On to those types that are on the rise, I guess one question that prompts in my mind is, is that, do you think, a change in sort of tactics of negativity, as in people are being as willing to attack their opponent that have decided that tactically it works better not to name them? Or is it that there's a genuine move away from attacking your opponent, whether you name them or not? It's difficult to say. I mean, one of the, the projects that I had done was looking at how people view different types of negativity, right? So these different types of negative appeals that you might make, talking about a leader, an issue, candidate. And one of the things that we found is that people are more likely to think that talking about your opponent is negative than any other types of what we would define as negativity. So they actually don't think it's that problematic to say, criticize an opponent's policy views. But once you start talking about someone personally, either a leader or um, a candidate, it becomes a bit more, it, it becomes into more what, what most people would think of, of as, as kind of talking negative. And so there's lots of research within political science that suggests that talking negative about your opponent, while it can work, it can also backfire. So there's some risk to candidates. So I think you, you know you, you're correct, quite right to say that maybe they think it's just really not worth it. Um, it. It's not worth the risk, and it's it's unlikely that they are going to be able to re- to reveal something that's so fundamental that would cause someone, you know, to switch parties about about a specific candidate. I mean, that's just my view, but it is definitely viewed to be more negative than other types of negativity. Yeah, well, that's interesting. So in a way, that's quite a promising trend uh, that, that cynics, at least about politics, are maybe slightly over-egging the pudding if, if things are not getting more negative. But you were going to go on to say, talk about some <laughs> of the conclusions you've drawn from it. Yeah, so so while one type of negativity is is perhaps less less prominent, um, other types of negativity are on the rise. So um, we see that that parties are much more likely to criticize an opposing opposing party's leader, um, and those those um, attacks, if you will, or those criticisms, if you want to phrase it more kindly, um, are becoming less policy-based and more character or competence-based, um, you know, so strong and stable versus chaos, you know, coalition of chaos, those types of, of appeals of really speaking to the character and competence of, of an opposing leader, those have been very evident since 2015 and in a way that we did not see perhaps uh, in 2010. So, I mean, and, and those there's, there's quite a bit of evidence that those types of appeals really cut through, you know, I mean, these are really playing up on um, beliefs that the public had to say about um, Ed Miliband's competence as a, as a, as a leader um, and, and really pushing out that kind of door um, in terms of the public's mindset. So I, I think we see while the overall le- level of negativity in leaflets, at least, isn't isn't higher, there, there are increasing uses of certain types of appeals. And, and, and it's my view that there is evidence that, that those appeals do cut through. And I guess there's an important value judgment about whether criticising leaders for their personal characteristics is a good or a bad thing. And again, I think the natural framing 
is for people to think that that's somehow wrong and that that's a bad part of policy. But I'm, I'm always reminded of a point that Charles Kennedy made about the 2001 general election and the subsequent parliament, that the issues that were the big issues during that election campaign bore very little relevance to what were then the big political issues in the subsequent parliament. And so if you go down the sort of Tony Benn school of you know, politics being about policies, not personalities, you, you end up with the problem that the policy debate in the 2001 election ended up being pretty much a sideshow compared to what events then, particularly the fallout from the 9-11 tragedy, but you know what events then put in front of politics. And on that basis, you could argue that evaluating politicians based on their personal characteristics is actually maybe the, the, the more rational and the better thing to do because we don't know what events are going to throw at us next year, but we can judge whether somebody is competent, whether somebody is panic prone, etc. Yes, I mean, I think in a, in a perfect, maybe in a perfect world, we would assume that all voters are fully informed about policy and they weigh their options and they, they understand the implications of all of the, the, the variety of, of, of issues that are on the table. Um, but the reality is we know that most voters have lots of things on their mind, children, jobs, uh, and, and in fact, most people devote relatively little attention to politics. I mean, if you imagine that you said someone spent five hours a week thinking about politics, actually, that would be a huge amount of investment. Um, so in terms of what that can then mean is, is because policy is difficult, other, other different types of what we would call heuristics or decision-making tools are easier. You know, it's easier in a way to form an assessment of an individual's character than it is to evaluate a party's policies, right? To decide is, um, you know, is is a particular leader competent? Do I think they're trustworthy? Because that's something we we, we form these judgments all the time, quickly. Um, whereas understanding, you know, is is a is Labour's tax policy, you know, right for me? That's a hard that's a hard question. Um, so I think, you know, yes, I mean, you know, these types of appeals they're easily formed, but they're also open to, to their own sets of bias, right? People can often form these judgments based on things that we don't necessarily want them or would wish that they would not do so. So for example, and um, we might prefer that we infer a, a leader's competence by their record in office, as you said, you know, what someone has done will tell us, could they handle a crisis in the future? The problem is that we know that lots of people don't have that level of information either. And, and often what, what happens is they form those judgments on the basis of, you know, a very short impression of how that leader performs on a radio interview or a TV debate. Or And we've, we've seen lots of discussion about this in the public sphere. So, you know, I think while those judgments are easier, um, they also can be based on less substance. And that's not unique to politics by any means. No. If, no. If I, I shouldn't confess, but when I, when I, you know, normally, most years I try to make it to the EPOC conference or sort of the trade, the trade body conference of political scientists, I'm usually the, the one hobbyist in the room. And when, you know, yourself and your colleagues are giving presentations, quite often the level of, say, statistical detail in them is beyond my ability to sensibly evaluate. And so, you know, there is a bit of, I'm sure, however much I try to listen and evaluate the quality of the research 
fairly. There is a bit about what is just my instinctive gut reaction when somebody gets up at the front of the room and starts talking. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm sure there are bits of research that I have unfairly either underappreciated or overappreciated because of that what's somebody like in the first 30 seconds of speaking, which, of course, doesn't really reflect how good or not they are at gathering and, and al- analysing evidence or understanding, you know, the context of previous people's research and so on. But it's a very prevalent factor. Now, I, I, the, the flip side of that, of course, is that that is because we know people behave like that. That is something that campaigns as, you know, with anyone, say, speaking in the front of a room can deliberately play to that as well to try and make a good impression. Uh, and, and have these factors working in their favour. And I think that's one thing that your research has looked at, isn't it? It's about how different leaflet campaigns try to positively promote a candidate and their backstory. Is that right? Yes. So that's the project that we're working on at the moment, which is looking about specifically at, so there's two types of leaflets, you know, leaflets that focus on the party and leaflets that focus on the candidate or have a mention of the candidate with the latter being charged to the to the candidate's expenses um, so we're, we're currently working on a, a stream of research that looks at what candidates say um, and how they talk about themselves so um, a candidate might talk about um, their local ties to the community this is obviously very common and there's a great deal of research that suggests that voters prefer their local candidates um, they also like doctors um, but they really want someone who represents their community is that gives them that sense of getting that local representation. You must be loving the fact that at the time we're recording, the Hartley Call by-election is underway, where Labour yes. has a doctor who's not local. It's almost like they've created the perfect test case for you there. Yeah. To their rebels. Well, and, and, and I'm sure if, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of research that looks at the interplay between these characteristics and you know, what, what dominates. And, and, and I would have advised that you would be better to have a lawyer who's local than a doctor who's not. Um, but because local tends to be come, come through as kind of one of the most significant factors that um, voters look for um, in a candidate. So it's, it's surprising that, that more candidates aren't, aren't in fact local. So we, we look at this because... <sighs> While there's a great deal of research that suggests that voters like certain characteristics and they're interested in these sorts of characteristics that their candidates have, that not every candidate talks about them. Um, So what we are quite interested to know is who talks about themselves and how do they talk about themselves? Um, And we look at two types of traits. So we look at the extent to which they emphasize their ties to the, to, the, to the local community. This could be they live there, their children go to local schools, they um, work at a local business, um, or the extent to which they talk about their own personal attributes. So someone might speak about um, their previous experience as a local counselor, which is designed to give um, a, a voter the impression that they have the ability to engage in competent representation. Um, they might talk about um, you know, their family, they might talk about their, their educational background. So there's a lot of overlap between these two things because you could work for, you could be talking about um, being a local counselor and you could be a local council in the local area, right? So those kind of traits and ties kind of go together. And so we find actually lots of really interesting things because one of the things I find most fascinating is while we know that voters value certain types of traits, actually most candidates don't mention anything. Um, so, so, so about half of the leaflets that, um, that belong to candidates mention the candidate's name only. 
So this means that the candidate will pay for it and it will often have their photo on it um, and their name, but they won't actually talk about anything related to their own profile, instead focusing on, on you know, party issue positions. So actually that's the most common way. Um, about a third um, to 40% of, of leaflets um, talk about the candidate's local ties. Um, and about the same percentage talk about their individual traits, you know, experience, education, um, and so on and so forth. So it's, it's actually not as common as you would think, given that we know that voters value these traits. So that could be because either a candidate doesn't, um, doesn't have any of those traits, and so you can't talk about something that you don't have, but there's also evidence that sometimes voters have these traits and they or candidates have these traits and they don't talk about them. Um, so the latest project that we're working on is looking at the different types of, of campaigns run by female and male candidates and how men and women talk about themselves. Um, and in, in news that will probably be surprising to no one, men are more likely to talk about themselves um, than women. Um, so we find that actually female candidates are less likely to talk about their local ties. They're less likely to talk about, um, about their, um, their experience, their education, um, all of these things, um, except family. They're just as likely as men to talk about their own, their, their, their family and, and, and mention them in their leaflets. But they aren't less likely to have those traits. So if you look at other data, surveys of candidates, we find that actually women aren't less likely to be local candidates. So what that suggests is they, they have these traits, but they're not talking about them, which is a really fascinating. Because I, I was going to ask, and I, and I guess this is a bit of a red herring, given what you have just said about the gender differences, but I was wondering if one of the reasons why many candidates don't talk about their local credentials is because they are candidates in seats that their party isn't targeting. And therefore, in the seats that a party is targeting, effort will go into tailoring the leaflet for the candidate and the seat. But if you've then got a whole load of other seats that you're not targeting, you've, you, know, you may have a template leaflet that you drop the candidate's name into. And it's actually quite a lot of work to get in some local information and checking it and proofreading it and varying. So I can see why there might just be a very clear, you know, serious campaign versus uh, non-serious campaign. Mm. Have you been able to sort of compare the, pre the prevalence of candidate sort of profiling and leaflets with say, the election results or the marginality of the places where those see leaflets are going out? So I think there are lots of really interesting differences. And, and I think for some parties, they do choose to follow exactly the strategy that you mentioned and that they, they will spend a great deal more time um, talking about a candidate's characteristics and say a marginal seat. And that may be because it's more likely to make a difference, but also because they are more likely to choose a candidate who's going to appeal to voters in those seats, right? So choosing a candidate who's a doctor or lives locally is much more likely to happen when say, for example, that's a marginal seat, whereas you know, it's, you're less likely to use your good candidates in seats that you know you're not going to win. Um, but there's also other, you know, that's not true of all parties. I mean, for example, the Green Party um, is relatively consistent in how they behave in their leaflets. And, and one might argue that's because they're never in real contention for a seat. But 
regardless of whether they're 40 points behind or, or 20, 20 points behind, they're still much more likely to talk about their personal attributes and their experience and ties to the community. So, I mean, there's lots of different interplays of factors here with some party-specific factors rolled in. Yeah. So if that's the candidate side of things, there's obviously lots of other elements that can go into leaflets as well. Is there anything else you've sort of spotted uh, in terms of any major trends or the absence of trends, going back to your point about how negativity isn't overall particularly increasing? So one of the one of the really interesting things that I have always been fascinated is is how candidates include their party in in leaflets. Um, so I became quite interested in this uh, in following the 2015 general election um, when I realized that actually there was a huge amount of variation in the extent to which candidates were willing to include, say, for example, um, a photo of them with their leader, um, and so. We've been analyzing this over time, and, and, and as you would expect, um, candidates are very strategic. Um, now, you could say, you could say, for example, look, they've got finite space, and they need to decide. You know, a picture with a leader takes off words that they might be able to use to, to raise their own profile. But it's not just about that. Um, and in fact, as as we might imagine, um, candidates are very strategic, and when their leader is perceived to be popular. Um, they're much more likely to include them. So we often see, um, for example, in the 20, uh, 2019 general election, Lib Dems, lots of, of, of leader photos. Um, we did not see so many photos of, of, of Jeremy Corbyn, um, so, um, who has, ha- in fact, been one of the least likely to be photographed um, leaders in the entire um, sample um, that we've, we've an- analyzed. So, and, it's, and it goes even a step further that we find evidence that where the leader is perceived to be popular, unpopular locally, that also affects their desire to put a picture with their leader in. So obviously some leaders are more popular in other some areas versus others. And, and we do see that variation. So I find it as just a really fascinating um, aspect of, of kind of the choices that candidates make and it kind of really flies in the face of this idea that leaflets are just carbon copies of things that are sent out by parties and candidates just, you know, send out the same thing everywhere. Actually, they do a lot of tailoring um, and they're incredibly strategic about what they include. And what surprised you most then looking through all of these leaflets? Hmm. What surprised me? Well, that's so difficult. Uh, I mean, I think... I've hit a lot of the, those points today. I mean, there's there's some things that we find that that you know that confirm what we know. I mean, I, I was not terribly surprised to see that Ed Miliband or Jeremy Corbyn didn't feature very heavily uh, in election leaflets. So some of that stuff is, you know, it's it's what we would expect. But you know, it's still really important that it's still a question that needs to be answered, and it's an empirical question that 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 scholars should should consider. I find. I find the, the the issues around gender to be quite interesting, um, especially given the evidence that women are not less necessarily less likely to be have characteristics that make them high quality candidates. So I think that's particularly fascinating because we need to understand, you know, why female candidates don't choose to put these attributes forth forward because that may have influences down the line, right? If they're less likely to talk about their strengths, well, then perhaps they're putting forward a less compelling case than than a, their male camp counterparts. So I think for me that those types of judgments, which don't necessarily become immediately obvious, 
Um, I think that I find that quite fascinating. It would be fascinating to see how MPs' maiden speeches in Parliament match up with that, whether there's a similar gender divide over the extent to which people you know, talk about themselves. And, and there is always, you know, there's quite a strong convention, isn't there, with maiden speeches in Parliament, that they're about the constituency and about saying some nice words about your predecessor, even if they were from a you know, different party. But nonetheless, the there's quite a lot of scope within that traditional structure of a maiden speech to really talk up your local links with a constituency or not. So I, I mm. be, it will be one day, hopefully you will have a research student who will take that on as their own little angle, because I, I, I think, you know, my much more qualitative impression is that there are some significant divides, not just over gender, but that you get around uh, different eth- uh, candidates from different ethnicities about the extent to which they feel there is real value in talking about you know, what they have personally done in the past. But also that there's a divide over what they consider to be relevant. So you see this, I think, particularly in internal Lib Dem elections where people are, by the nature of that sort of contest, having to talk much more about themselves because you've not got the same levels of policy difference that you you have in public elections. Um, But there's a difference, therefore, between people who say, you know, vote for me, I'm wonderful because of all of these previous posts that I've held versus vote for me, I'm wonderful because of all these previous things that I've done. And then there's, mm. there's an interesting distinction there, which again, it might it'll be, I don't know if you've looked at that in public leaflets, whether uh, there are any patterns as to how people choose to talk about themselves. No, we haven't looked at that yet, but I think that, as you rightly point out, there's, there's a, an additional entire body of research after this, you know, to really look at, to, to really marry up you know, what they say when they want to get elected and, and what they say after they're elected. And that's the, you know, that's the next part of the representational chain, if you will. I mean, because, I mean, this project that we're doing is is really about increasing transparency and, and giving voters a sense about what parties say across the country. Because, you know, micro-tar- micro-targeting means that now voters get a very small snapshot and it may be targeted to their very specific traits. Um, so I think what we really want to do is, is kind of shine a light on, on, on kind of what the promises that are being made and how voter or how parties represent themselves. But the next stage of that is to really look at, you know, do they follow through on those promises and, and does what they say commit them to certain types of actions later on? And I guess it's not a coincidence that the sorts of questions you've talked about are the ones where it's reasonable to expect that what is done in leaflets reflects what is done as well in other elements of their campaigning. That, you know, if a candidate is choosing not to talk very much about themselves in their leaflets, it would be surprising if they were actually talking about themselves an awful lot in their Facebook advertising. But, but in this case, leaflets probably is a reasonable proxy for their overall campaign approach. You would think so, though we might expect certain types of variation. I mean, you know, different differences between Twitter and and Facebook, for example. You know, just in terms of the length of the characters, one might one might see. I would expect someone to talk more about themselves on Facebook than on on, on Twitter. So, but I, I do think that you know, because there's a big focus on on digital methods of campaigning now. But I think one. One point well, that we always try to make is that leaflets are still the most common interaction that voters have with candidates and political parties during a campaign, right? So 
it blows every other type of interaction out of the water. And so I think, you know, in terms of getting information about politics, this is the way that they do it. And if you're someone who doesn't read a leaflet, you're certainly someone who isn't reading a candidate's Twitter feed or Facebook page, right? So it's really the kind of, it's the gateway, you know, to, to learning about politics. And, and if they're interested enough to read a leaflet, then they, they might go on to these other, other attributes and other modes of campaigning as well. But, but it's really kind of, candidates have a very strong incentive to put everything on the table there and give, give a really good picture. Yeah, and it's a point that your um, former colleague at Nottingham, Phil Cowley, has often made as well, isn't it? That he particularly has made it about direct mail rather than but that if you... When he has interviewed people in party campaign HQs as part of the various books he's written on general elections and so on, the one of the major activities that parties put a huge amount of money into is direct mail. And one of the activities that gets almost completely ignored in most you know, political science research into elections and how voters behave and so on is direct mail. And, um, you know, and in that sense, I think, you know, the work that you're doing into leaflets is filling a really important gap in that understanding. Because, I mean, I guess there will be some voters who say live behind intercoms in a gated community without a communal letterbox, etc. So it may well be that parties' digital campaigns are the only thing that really reach them um, or possibly posted direct mail, but the leaflets don't. But as you say, broadly speaking, uh, the most information voters are going to get about most of the candidates up for election in you know this May's mammoth round of elections, for example, is going to be what's you know what's put on piece of paper through their letterbox, unless somebody's in the exceptional case of saying being a you know, a constituent with a party leader as you know one of the candidates on the ballot paper, where they may actually pick up rather more through the media. But for almost all voters and almost all candidates, leaflets are the sort of the dominant. The dominant thing so i'm sure you have many decades of more research um ahead of ahead of you is there is there any particular question that you've not yet though managed to dig into that the sort of think oh this is the thing i wish wish i knew or wish we're, we're mm-hmm. you know, looking forward to being able to get around to, to looking at well i mean in terms of where we you know where do we hope to go i mean one of the things that we would like to to look at is is something that you mentioned earlier is is to look at not just gender differences but uh, how race and ethnicity plays out in different types of campaigns um because this actually at an epop conference um two years ago um uh, we had some excellent feedback from from a member of, of the labor party on one of our projects and and thinking about how candidates talk about themselves and and he made a really good point about um, candidates contesting in 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 areas that are minority um minority seats and how that may how that may vary and how what they talk about might vary as the diversity of a seat increases right so um it's not just i mean because we wouldn't wish to assume that all people who you know, share similar views. Actually, many of these seats can be lots of different groups um, with different backgrounds, religions, um, motivations, and, and so on and so forth. So really thinking about how we might understand how candidates talk about themselves in those seats, right, and how how 
parties respond to pressures in, in that area. Um, we're also really quite interested in, in thinking about what happens next, right? So um, how we can, can triangulate what we know about what they say during the campaign to what they do afterwards. And, and can we create um, a mechanism for allowing voters to understand whether whether candidates have kept their promises, um, because that would be a really nice aspect of, of transparency that is kind of really missing. And, and all of these things are, are, are challenging because while leaflets are the, the kind of the most fundamental way that voters engage with uh, you know, political elites during a campaign, they're also the most difficult to catch data, gather data on. Because Twitter, you know, Facebook, all of that you can download. You can have everything that a candidate's ever said on Twitter, um, for better or worse. Um, leaflets are much more difficult, right? So, so a lot of what we're going to be working on over in the coming years is thinking about how we can expand that data set, right, to get a, a wider range of elections. So right now we're focusing on the, the elections to the Welsh and Scottish parliaments, um, how we can expand prior to 2010. So there are lots of, of, of repositories of, of hard copy leaflets all over the country, Bristol, um, Strathclyde, you know, can we bring those in? So we can really get to the question that you posed at the very beginning, which was how have campaigns changed over time? Um, we can answer that question for 10 years, but obviously um, there's a much longer time horizon that is begging to be explored. When my leaflet collection exceeds my shelf capacity, I know now what I need to do with the leaflets, clearly. You've mentioned... Uh, other research that's been done and how you know your work sits alongside that so if if anyone listening to this is just keen to know a bit more about yeah you know, political leaflets and some of the wider issues about local candidates and so on that you've mentioned is there any anything in particular you would recommend people look at or read if they'd like to find out more oh uh, it's hard there's so much excellent excellent work done in this area i mean in terms of of work on uh, election leaflets per se, there actually isn't a great deal in this country, um, which is why we've been kind of pushing at that, that particular gap. Um, there, there is a, a really excellent piece by uh, Mark Shepard, who's at the University of Strathclyde, that looks at, um, looks at um, the types of messages that were used um, in elections in Scotland. Um, and... There's some, some work by Justin Fisher, which looked at the 2005 election and beginning to think about what themes that we might understand um, about elections. But there's a whole body of literature for those interested in understanding um, about uh, what types of candidates um, get elected and, and, and why we might, um, how we might um, understand why they should talk about what they talk about. Um, so you've already mentioned my, um, my former colleague, Phil Kelly, who has a lot of excellent work um, in this area. Um, he has done some really great work with uh, Rosie Campbell at uh, King's College London, looking at gender and occupation and how these factors interplay and, and what types of characteristics that um, voters want and voters value. But again, there's, there's lots of, of research now looking at um, using really cool techniques to understand um, how voters value certain traits and how those traits interplay with each other. And, and we can learn lots from um, marketing research. 
which um, in marketing they use very similar tools to understand what sorts of appeals might might um, might resonate with a prospective um, purchaser of a product. So using lots of really cool t- tools, you know, that we we get from other disciplines that that allow us to shed really unique light into what voters value. Yeah, Phil and Rosie have done some fantastic research where they um, put together a fake biog of. Uh, mm-hmm and ask people if they're going to be more or less likely to vote for them. And then they ask, put the same fake biog to other people, but vary one element. So to be able to test that and particularly digging into things like if somebody is a rich businessman or, or businesswoman, is that a positive attribute? They're successful or is that seen as a negative attribute? Maybe rich, posh, out of touch, whatever. Uh, so I will include uh, some links in the show notes to to their research, as well as uh, Justin Fisher and Mark Shepard. Um, and I'll also include a link to your Open Elections uh, Project website. I should just check, is it just leaflets for Scotland and Wales that you're after for this May, or listeners in England, are they are they welcome to upload leaflets as well? So for the moment, we're just focusing on, um, on, on leaflets for the Welsh and Scottish parliaments. Um, we hope in the long term to broaden out to a range of elections. Um, it's just, you know, as with all of these things, you know, you have to go with the project and the funding uh, to go with it. So um, we're also, you know, we hope in the long term to get a much broader range. Um, but for the moment, it's just those. Um, but one thing I also wanted to point out about the website is for those interested, um, you can also help us code leaflets. Um, so we have a coding tool on the leaflet, which is when you upload something, um, we ask citizens to help us you know, citizen science, help us understand themes and identify themes in those leaflets. So, in fact, we don't just rely on citizens for, um, for to submit the raw data, but we also welcome their involvement in helping us understand patterns in, in these leaflets as well. So I would certainly encourage or welcome contributions of anyone um, who wants to, you know, play their own role in, in this kind of this project around um, understanding and promoting transparency in election campaigns. Brilliant. That sounds like the perfect way to while away a Sunday afternoon <laughs> browsing through leaflets and helping code them up for the purpose of political science research. So thank you so much for your time, Caitlin. Uh, listeners can find Caitlin on Twitter at Caitlin Milazzo, which is M-I-L-A-Z-O, myself at Mark Pack, and this podcast at Bar Chart Podcast. Look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed, including that project website with the upload and coding leaflet links. And if you like listening, please do tell others about the podcast and give it a quick rating or review in your favourite podcast app. Thank you very much for listening. <laughs>